Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Rethink Energy weekly podcast. Um, we're going to talk mostly about our issue. A couple of other things might come up. One thing that's been in the news, all over the news, China's five-year plan. Most people seem to believe that China will somehow renege on its uh, zero emissions policy as a result of a five-year plan that doesn't mention it. Harry, you looked into it. What, what's what's your uh, assessment of that? Yeah, it's difficult talking about the Chinese five-year plan because it's there's very much two ways you can look at it. You can look at it from the US side and think that it's much less ambitious than sort of the net zero targets we've seen from Western economies. But we have to remember when we're looking at these Chinese plans that China likes to set itself over realistic targets and then surpass them. I mean, the energy intensity targets are set in the in its th- uh, 12th and 13th five-year plans. Uh, it's surpassed. So we really have to sort of bear that in mind when we're analysing these policies. In terms of the actual figures, uh, the targets we've seen are a uh, an 18% reduction in carbon intensity per unit GDP and a 13.5% energy intensity target per, per unit GDP. So obviously what they're doing with that is then they're leaving some scope for them to actually continue their economic growth while suppose, putting the right trends in place to reduce their emissions. It, the difficult thing is how fast their GDP is obviously going to grow. I mean, what we've uh, calculated is that if their GDP grows anything more than 4% per year, that means that it will actually un- it'll sort of undo any actual emissions reductions. And this this pledge they've made of passing peak emissions by 2030 is starting to be drawn into question by that. I think the point that we really wanted to focus in on was that this will draw a lot of criticism from places like the US and the UK, maybe. There'll be some sort of levels of sanctions, really. Yeah, and- but countries, countries that live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. You know, greenhouse gas emissions in your glass house are biggest per capita from america yeah exactly i but i think that's that's a difficult thing in its own in its own right these countries do like to suddenly point fingers and solve problems overseas i mean we've sort of seen the uk this week make pledges that is going to protect loads of forest in in south america that is then going to use to offset emissions in in london so it's difficult seeing where this, these governments don't always just focus in on their own policies and i think as a result of these sort of underwhelming pledges from china we could see some more momentum gathering behind the idea of a border tax Saying that, US climate envoy John Kerry actually came out this morning and said and said that a carbon tax wouldn't necessarily be a good idea, especially following COVID-19, as a way of, sort of protecting free trade and encouraging more stimulated economic growth. I mean, I think that's something that will become a huge part of the debate over the next few weeks and few months. Yeah, that- but I mean, a year from now, two years from now, that debate, it, uh, economic growth is, is in the background again, and yet climate change is still here. I, I mean, I personally feel that a climate uh, carbon border tax is an absolutely brilliant idea. I don't know what everybody else here thinks, but my logic is this. If you are making stuff on the other side of the world to send it all the way back to you, and in there you're you're doing that in order to harness cheap labour, if you are at the same time throwing off loads and loads of carbon because of mostly the transport, but also the manufacturing methods, also the um, emissions uh, um, in, in the electricity sector, where you're where you're making stuff you've really ought to be instead making it at home and traveling less and a carbon border tax helps us in the west from um, stopping us exporting all of our industries to china and then complaining about them
I think having these carbon border taxes, it will definitely veer us away from sort of the global uh, globalization we've seen in capital um, in terms of capitalism, and we and we will revert to more sort of local production. But I think it's just a sacrifice that needs to be made, really, in terms of the the fight to uh, the fight against climate change. It's something it's sort of changing these perceptions on how global economies work uh, in a sort of sustainable way that people really need to sort of move forward with. I think the big the big thing that I suppose and it's almost a conflicting point with China is that their decision to not put any limit on coal in their 14 five year plan is very much a way of them sort of rejecting ideas of uh, importing uh, American natural gas. So that's a sort of an interesting dynamic that they're going to potentially choose a dirtier but more local option and then maybe transition uh, on a more domestic basis than becoming more dependent that, on the But that's not what trade. we're seeing on the ground in China. What we're seeing on the ground in China is more gas being used. We're seeing it as cleaner, people wanting to go towards it. We're seeing that in individual homes for heat. We're seeing it in, throughout industry. So if the government then says, no, we'll, we'll work with coal, that would have to be a real step backwards. And I don't believe that's going to happen. I, I think most of their gas doesn't come from America. Uh, America would love China to buy a lot of its gas. But at the moment, the transport from America to China is so expensive. America's out of their league. Uh, they've got Russia right next door giving away giving away gas. And they've got Australia, they've got Indonesia and Malaysia. You've got, you've got areas, and Qatar is half the distance. You know, it's um, that's where all their gas comes from. And I, I see their gas growing, not under any central control, but only because it's not coal. Yeah, definitely. I think that I think it will also be driven by the utilities and stuff as well. I mean, the China uh, Huaidan Group um, has made pledges to sort of actually reduce its amount of coal in itself, and a couple of the other utilities have set targets for when they're going to surpass peak emissions ahead of the the, the national target. And um, as we've been saying, me and Andres have been saying through separate articles over the sort of recent months, a lot of the provincial plans are much more ambitious in terms of renewables, and we will definitely see a much more rapid uptake than would be proposed, I suppose, through the 14th five-year plan targets. I mean. By 2025, we're expecting to see more than a half a terawatt of solar power in China and nearly that amount of, uh, of wind. So, yeah, it was quite weird in the run up to this five year plan. We saw this province has announced its five year plan guidelines. This province has announced that and it's hydrogen or offshore wind or whatever it happens to be. And then the actual national one is basically nothing. There will be more things announced later in the year. That's something that they've made very clear is that this 14th five year plan is about economic growth and there will be legislation set later on in the year in terms of renewables targets so it will be interesting to see what focus is placed on those and whether or not they follow what's being said in the and the provincial targets hmm. harry looking forward to, to the cop 26 in november when all of these economies square up with, with emissions what, what do you think china's going to say so this is where this sort of carbon border tax argument is really going to come into play and whether or not it pressures China into announcing more ambitious targets, we'll see. But I think there'll definitely be. I mean, the result that I expect to see from it is sort of acceleration in terms of national carbon markets, making sure there's more sort of level prices of carbon across the board. Um, I think the idea of a carbon border tax is probably something that will be implemented further down the line but it will be it'll be interesting to see how much pressure europe and the us for example could put, can put on china while somewhat falling short of their own targets yeah, a carbon border tax it's got to be some kind of graduated tax you, you you'll get allocated a, a score of how much emissions or how close to your emissions targets you are and you'll be given a tax burden based on that china europe and america will all be in the not paying any tax club Almost certainly. And this is a much bigger stick to beat Brazil, Indonesia, even Saudi Arabia with. And I, I see it 
coming into its own, you know, China will agree to a carbon border tax as long as it doesn't involve China, or, or if it involves it only slightly, or at the, at the same time as it being, uh, you can't have that and have um, uh, tariffs at the border because something's made very cheaply in China. I mean, I, I, I just see that whole thing as insanity. Let's go to China and make stuff. Let's make it really cheap. Oh, they're exporting cheap stuff to us. That's because they can make it really cheap. Let's punish them. It, it, it doesn't kind of make sense on a World Trade Organization basis. It much, makes much more sense to say they're producing more carbon. Let's punish them. It'll be really interesting to see how that metrics used because obviously China is responsible for nearly a third of global emissions but in terms of emissions per unit GDP they're behind India they're behind Russia and in terms of emissions per person they're behind loads of western economies they're behind the US they're behind yeah. Australia they're behind Germany so pointing the finger at China when it's still sort of developing is I mean it's farcical really I don't think it can be done it can't be done fairly and I think it'll be something we see pointed at China now it'll be something we see pointed at India in the near future the right places to point a weapon like that is that someone like Brazil, you know, to bring it into line with, at the moment, Brazil is doing the opposite of decarbonising, it's recarbonising. It's using less hydro and introducing more gas. It, it, it actually is the only country going in the wrong direction. People that import its goods need a weapon uh, to bring it into line. China's trying and it might be trying to get away with less. Yeah, there's a price on everything. So they might want to do less decarbonisation, arrive at their destination in 2060, not 2050, um, grow their economy a bit more for a bit longer. That's fine, but at least it's trying and it's in control. It's, it's places that are not really trying at all. The, the, the tidying up of this, of this energy transition is going to be a tough act. We need to change the subject. I was really intrigued by H2 Pro. I've been saying to you, Harry, for a while, can we not bring innovation to the electrolysis process? And you found someone who can. Yeah, really interesting, H2 Pro. They're, I mean, they're essentially a lab-based company at the moment. I mean, they're producing, they've got one unit that produces 100 grams of hydrogen a day, which seems like nothing. I mean, there's, there's t uh, units out there now that are doing 8.2 tonnes a day. But what's really exciting about H2 Pro is that I suppose like um, Andreas has been writing about in terms of perovskite, it's a process really that can uh, that could really boost the output of electrolysis. So um, what is aiming for, uh, what HD Pro is aiming for as a company is to have hydrogen on the market at $2 per kilogram by 2023, falling to sort of $1 uh, later in the decade, which is way ahead of what pe uh, most people are expecting. The process they use is is pretty similar to an alkaline electrolyzer. Essentially, you, you've got an anode and a cathode where hydrogen is produced at one, oxygen is produced at the other. Um, in traditional electrolyzers, they're produced at the same time. And actually, electricity is used in both processes, so about... So 20% of the electricity is actually allocated for oxygen production. So the ETAC um, process that HD Pro developed, what happens here is they use, they've split it into two steps. So they've decoupled it. In the first step, they produce hydrogen electrochemically at the cathode. And then through a second process, they actually flood the unit with um, some sort of hot liquid. I think it's actually water um, initially. Um, and that produces sort of overcomes the thermal boundary and actually helps produce the oxygen without any need for electricity. So without having to use electricity in the production of oxygen as well, you actually get a system which is around 95% efficient in terms of the actual use of electricity. Um, naturally, this does things like boost the cost of production. And because you're producing hydrogen and oxygen separately, you don't need a membrane to keep the, the gases separate. So that's another cost of production. 
it's you know they see it going two dollars per kilogram uh, when they start and one dollar per kilogram um, not long after that's it job's done i mean yeah you only need one company to say we can do this and everyone you know one company created a touchscreen phone and everyone copied now everyone's got a phone that touchscreen is obvious it's it's straight straightforward somebody one company does this everyone copies yeah, and I, I think um, seeing interest will gather behind it is just a matter of sort of the big companies starting to show interest in it and actually seeing it adopted at scale. Depends how quickly this sort of this can grow alongside companies like Nell and ITM that are actually producing these sort of economies of scale with using the existing practices. But once the technology is adopted by companies or similar uh, methods of production, if there's appropriate IP in place, then yeah, it's something that can just completely uh, overhaul the industry, I think. Yeah, intellectual property and, and the energy industry have not yet had their love affair. I mean, we've seen it in high tech, we've seen it in broadband, we've seen it in wireless, we've seen it in a lot of places where uh, multi-billion dollar lawsuits are brought against each other and eventually, after five, six, seven years of lawyers getting rich, we get some kind of result and a statement. And I imagine we've got to go through that here, that people are going to say, oh, no, I don't need to pay anyone anything. I don't need a license. I'll just copy it. Courts are always going to be less sympathetic to, um, to claims against technologies that are actually helping to save the planet, though. I think um, when it's companies like Apple fighting people like Samsung, there's no, always... No, not in the slightest. They're, they're simply... There's one rule. Was this obvious? Was this already known? Is this an invention? If this is an invention, you have to pay you have to pay IPR for it. They are the only rules. Globally, we've agreed that. Uh, over 200 countries have agreed that. So is it an innovation or was it obvious? Is there prior art? And that's where intellectual property balances. Now, I mean, these guys could say they've solved a number of technical difficulties in the steps, and that's a technique, and therefore that's an invention. But obviously, making hydrogen from electrolysis is in is 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 uh, in the commons now i mean that's, you, know, you can't say i invented that what you can say is i invented this step which improves that and you can license it we should see licensing deals how many licensing deals have you seen written about in the past two years oh countless but yeah i think within the hydrogen sets we've not seen it um we've not really seen it yet but yeah i suppose that that period of time is really about to start to me it's obvious you say we can work at this for two or three years and go back to the labs and find out how to do this ourselves. We can pay these guys a couple of pe- couple of cents on the dollar. They're using it now and they sign a licensing deal, but they are not used to it. And so they're going to find it hard to do. I, I, I'm, I've not seen a single energy company that lives on licensing revenues. Not yet. No, I mean, that's that's something that um, I, mean, I know we talk about them a lot, but Proton Technology is very um, keen to do in terms of its hydrogen using oil wells. That's their their route to market. I think it is something we'll see much more um, see used much more commonly in these new processes, especially considering now there's so many sort of established energy majors. Um, but they can't even find anyone to, to trial their product, to trial the idea, Proton. I mean, they, they found one now. They haven't said who it is. But, you know, it's slow progress, you know, whereas they should have been... One of the big oil majors should have signed them up. Yeah, we're, we want preferential rights to the technology. If it works, you can use it on this oil. We'll pay for it. That's, that should have been the reaction, but it's not. It's, well, go away and prove it. Come back when you've proved it. Yeah, I suppose on, on that note, they actually they, they have got some pilots that are coming out now. And I think they are starting to pull in more more license agreements. I think it's, up, it, it's, it's getting towards the number of 10 in terms of deals that they've got sort of underway. 
Come back to the licensing agreements because the deals, because we, we want to talk about uh, what's happening at Siemens Gamisa Hot Rocks technology. But just as a last thing on hydrogen, today something popped into my inbox. It's been going on for a while. We wrote about it a year ago that Australia are using Lignite to create hydrogen to export to Japan. It just seems to be an utter waste of time. It's just a way of keeping coals, coal plants alive. It just seems, just seems to be... Yeah, it's like they got the wrong end of the stick on the hydrogen revolution. It's meant to be green. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a flash in the pan. It won't last very long. We'll see a few projects try it and then we'll see a few customers adopt it. And then as soon as green hydrogen becomes cost competitive, two years time, they'll be gone. They'll be stranded assets. It'd be an absolute waste of money for those involved. Because Japanese corporations are already asking for a renewable energy, even without a a proper government uh, initiative to force them into it. And you come back to the border tax. If the Japanese want to import that hydrogen and there was a border tax around Japan, they couldn't. Anyway, just so Siemens Gamisa, um, they, they, that's the technology that two years ago uh, we're talking about their uh, electrothermal energy storage technology, which is basically taking basalt, heating it up using spare electricity and then keeping it warm um, for a rainy day, either either to power district heating systems and uh, or to um or to regenerate electricity they were saying a few weeks earlier we've got a dozen hard, you know hard leads we're working with a lot of people uh, this is going uh, great guns in response to that that article we wrote um, a guy from um, from a company called alpha rock pointed out that 573 degrees as measured by, um, I believe it's the uh, equivalent of the German Aerospace Centre, the rocks they use just splinter and fall into uh, to sand, and it's very hard to get that sand to hold any heat at all, and the whole thing doesn't work because it can't deal with thermal shock. Now, I've sent that off to Seamus Gamisa. The silence has been deafening. <laughs> or, you know, uh, why won't they answer? You know, they, they must, uh, they must not... You can't change the laws of physics. This stuff either works or it doesn't. And if it doesn't, or it sort of works. And one of the things this guy at, um, at Alpha Rock was saying was, yeah, you can heat it, keep it under 573 degrees, or you can take 24 hours to heat it up. But that's not really a form of storage if you if it takes you 24 hours to go from cold to warm. It's, it's certainly not, it's a lot less useful than perhaps Simmons Gamisa are saying, and, and they, in their advertising, they talk about it holding temperatures up to 650 degrees. So there's something going on there. All of their orders will fall over if it's true. And they need to answer us because people are reading these stories. They're copying them into other publications. Word is getting around and their orders will fall over. Well, you know, they need to talk. Andres, let's have a look at, uh, I was really interested. So I've read about this startup. I've read about this idea of using microgrooves before, but you've got somebody using it in perovskites, and it seems quite exciting. You seem quite excited by it. Yeah, it's it's nice to see that you know even after writing a report on perovskites, oh, there's another type. You know, I thought roll-to-roll printing perovskites. It's so cheap, it's so thin. It'll be great for building integrated photovoltaics or a few other applications as well, like devices or even utility scale if they can uh, in the future. But um, but these guys have something special on top of that, which is they carve a bunch of microgrooves into a plastic surface, and then they print uh, electrodes on each groove. And then if you pour perovskite ink into that, it's a completely different type of uh, arrangement of, uh, of solar cells and solar modules. And what did they tell me? They said 
in a 20 centimeter squared demonstrator cell, they have 8,000 solar cells. So the solar cells are incredibly numerous and incredibly tiny. I think compared to even other perovskites, certainly compared to silicon, where you have 72 cells to a, an entire module, they have uh, like thousands. Apart from anything else, that means you can punch a hole in it and it only damages the area that you punch because there's so many small cells, they're all compartmentalized to an extent. But another thing is, uh, so you, not... you had them laced up both in series and in parallel. Yeah, I so think that, so. That they can, they can, so they've got a healing architecture and they can find their, their own route. Yeah. The microgroove is really what they do themselves. They don't actually have their own perovskite research. They're using other people's, which is fine at this point. Because they so much knowledge. Um, no, but I think they're still looking around between different people because there's, there's so many different variations on perovskite. With this microgroove thing, they told me they can even, if they just don't put perovskite ink, if they make the grooves a bit wider and put some dielectrics in, then you have a capacitor. And maybe that's a bit more typical, um, This using microgrooves for capacitors. It's not something I'm expert in. With perovskites, the, you keep on seeing these 24% efficient or higher one centimeter squared test cells. And then when they try to scale them up with a typical perovskite approach, they lose efficiency because you need this very even film over a large area so if there's any um, imperfections it really degrades the efficiency and and the efficiency of a perovskite module most of them is about half of what they actually have at the cell level but obviously this is is so small scale it doesn't have that issue because it's it's not a, it's it's a completely different arrangement um, what, so what's your feeling for its time to market they actually have a pilot line this year for about 10 megawatts well uh, potentially 10 megawatts and right, like 10 megawatts not going to change the world. Hmm. Um, what's their process for scaling that in subsequent years? It's licensing, and they, they want to go into uh, all sorts of places. They've they've had agreements. They they want to go into India, and they've had a they've had a test demonstration in the Himalayas somewhere with, with India trying to develop its own industry. They would be very interested in licensing this sort of thing, I think. And then you've got Japan. They mentioned Japan as another place where they have some kind of. Uh, agreement. I think they'll be announcing um, stuff in, in the next couple of months. That's what they said. So, uh, I mean, the, it is an interesting idea, the idea hmm. that countries like India um, go their own way on a particular technology. Um, we've seen in EVs that uh, China are looking at uh, not going with lithium ion for batteries and working with some Israeli company on zinc oxide uh, renewable batteries. Uh, if that's not an oxymoron. And you lose the global scale if you go that route. Um, China doesn't, uh, India doesn't use that many cars. Um, it uses a lot more two-wheelers and three-wheelers. Mm. So, so, but you, it's the same with this. If they go that route, they, they can't, they're going to find it hard to export. They're going to find it hard to import <laughs> and they'll be stuck with the speed of development that they can uh, that they can maintain on their own. I, I um, should actually answer your question about how fast they're going to scale up. They said gigawatts in the next few years. And I actually think that's that could easily happen if their pilot line goes well. It's, it's basically congruent with what uh, I said in, our, in the perovskite report. The story it's, says 10 gigawatts by 2026 is possible. Hmm. But you think of how many gigawatts are going to be laid down in solar in 2026. And what 10 gigawatts is as a percentage of that, hmm. and and you have to kind of say, well, it, it's 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 got to keep doubling and keep keep that kind of momentum going uh, into the 2030s before it's really significant. But yeah, I mean, let's let's keep an eye on them. Let's keep in touch with them. Let's see if they um, they achieve it and and don't hit a roadblock. It'd, it'd be nice.